Well, good morning and welcome to uh, the next installment of this series, um, Fatal Failures. So what we're doing throughout this series, especially for, uh, for guests worshiping with us uh, today, maybe you're uh, experiencing this at Encounter Church Online, is we're taking a look at all the different ways in the Bible, uh, people, and also today, how we all have these failures, these mistakes, these things that, that hold us back, and about what God does with all of those things. Is that God actually, he doesn't end the story there, but sometimes he does incredible, amazing things actually through those failures, not just in spite of them. And we're going to hear another one of those stories here this morning. But I want to kind of start us off with a group of people here today that know a thing or two about failing. I want to talk specifically this morning to those of you parents, especially dads, like you guys get what these fails are. I get what this is all about because I just, I hope, I hope that I get all of my failings out as a parent before my kids are like old enough to remember them and to use them as ammunition and weapons back to me in, in my old age. So I know like that all the times that I failed, and people will say things to you like as a parent, like, hey, don't worry about it. Like there's no, uh, there, there's no handbook for parenting. And then you go to the library and you realize there is. There's like a thousand of them in the parent section. And I just chose not to read them and, and like learn the hard way. Right? So especially some of you dads, you know this failure when you're like wrestling with your kids in the living room and then you accidentally squish one. Like that, that's a dad fail right there. Or if you're like pushing them on the merry-go-round and you're like, hey, a little bit is, is good, more is better, right? The faster they go, the bigger the smile. So we can really get that thing going until they fly off and end up in the next zip code over. It's a, it's a dad fail. But the big one, I remember, we used to play this game. It was, it, it, maybe it's just us. It's a very complicated game called hide and seek. And we don't play it anymore because the last time that we played it, it was my turn to go hide. And my two kids, they were going to come find me. And they were in the kitchen and it was nighttime, so it was dark outside. And I hid in the utility room in the basement. Otherwise, the game's just way too easy, right? And I hid in there and I, it was right by the electrical panel. So I just like look up and I just shut off like all of the lights in the whole house. <laughs> and they never found me. <laughs> Because they were so scared, they just like huddled together and they never left the kitchen floor and they just started crying. I had to go find them. We don't play anymore. <laughs> right? It's a, it's, it's a dad fail. And so we're talking about the failings here today, again this morning. And some of you are like, I absolutely can identify with that all the way. We're talking about parenting. We're talking about the kids this morning and, and, and these fail stories. Um, but listen, like, it's, it's fun to talk about those things. It's, it's fun to get that going. But in all honesty, like, I think about some of those, like, dad fails uh, for me personally and, and many of you I know as well. Because uh, I came across this bit of research, uh, Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Martins uh, is a clinical psychologist, and she writes and speaks on, on this subject. And, and one of the things that she observed in children is that perfectionist parents, as parents who don't ever fail at all, ever, perfectionist parents actually create similar amounts of shame and anxiety in their children as abusive parents do. And for me, at least just like soaking that in, that's I mean, that's hard, that's hard to read, right? Because we all, we want to be the best parents that we possibly can. But, but she expands on that and she talks about how when there's no room to fail, when everything has to be exactly right all the time and you can never mess up, it just, it creates this system where the children are just constantly in a state of on edge, walking on eggshells, just anxiety, stress all the time. And then like the shame in adulthood that carries with them. It's incredibly, incredibly 
powerful thing. And so it kind of led on uh, to this movement called like good enough parenting, which is, uh, I think, really freeing and liberating in a lot of ways. But, but here, listen, what I'm talking about today, and many of you I know aren't, aren't parents uh, at all, aren't parents yet, and that's okay, because what we're talking about today has, has less to do with parents. My kids are too small for me to have any credibility on that at all anyway. Well, what I would like to do is to apply that principle to the church, because sometimes we bring that perfectionist mentality into the church, and we say, this is what This is what church is supposed to be like. We're supposed to be a group of people who have it all together. And there's actually a word for that in the church, and it's called legalism, and it's toxic. And so this series is about giving us the freedom to say, hey, listen, it's not okay. We're not going to gloss over some things that are wrong with us as individuals, with us as a church. But we're also going to say that where sin exists, grace exists abounds over that. And we're not perfect. So this is not a movement in counter church or any church. This is not a movement where we're, where we're growing to become a showroom for saints, but an emergency room for sinners, gathering to experience and even to worship the great physician, Jesus Christ, who said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So the assumption is all of us gathered here together is that we have an illness, we have a disease, and it's called sin. And we want to own that and be upfront and be honest about that. So what I love is as a, a New Testament guy, Paul, he wrote about half of the books in the New Testament. And he's, he's older and wiser and a more seasoned, mature Christian. He's writing a letter to one of, one of his young apprentices named Timothy. And in the letter, 1 Timothy 1.15, if you want to look it up later. And he says, this, is, this saying deserves full acceptance. Um, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, of whom I'm the worst. And I love that so much. You, you can make a case. I mean, he, he was pretty awful. He did some pretty awful things. But he was owning that label of whom I am the worst. Because I think what Paul got is the difference between value and price. I mean, he understood these things, especially when it comes, when it comes to God. And he goes, listen, we could... We could discount our sin. We could write it down. We could mark it down and however we view that. I mean, that's our view. It's our perspective. It's ours to, to write down if we want to. But we could mark down our sin like 10% in our own sight. But what does that do to grace? But what that does to grace is it marks down grace equally or even more so. It marks down grace about 10%. But I don't think we mark down our sin 10%. I think we mark it down a lot more than that. If we mark it down 50%, if we mark it down and say our sin is now 90% off, we might feel better about it. But what we've just done is we've robbed God of the glory of demonstrating his grace and his power in our lives by 90%. We just take that value away from him. So what this morning is about is reaching all the way down to the bottom and to the depths. And seeing how God meets us there. And he doesn't call it okay. But he does something about it. And we're going to see grace abound. All right, so let's go to our story. It comes from Genesis chapter 4. We're phone friendly around here. So we, you know, that's great if you want to follow along that way. But this is a great time too. If you'd like to follow along in a paper Bible, if you kind of wanted to figure that thing out and, and follow along that way. This is a good time. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. There's cha- Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. You can grab one of those, take it home. We give those away all the time, and we love that. Genesis chapter 4, it starts off, uh, it starts off in verse 1, 
And we, and we read that Adam made love to his wife Eve. So this is like the first couple. God created Adam and Eve as the first couple in the whole world. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. And he just like paused right there to say, listen, this is like early. This is the first time this has ever happened. He's just like imagine what this would have been like for them, right? Like just for a second. I mean, all of a sudden, like, like she's putting on a little bit of weight, you know? Like what, he's like wondering what's going on. And God's like, there's, there's a baby in there. And he's like, where? Right? It's just a whole thing, right? We talk about jokes like, you know, there was you no know, manual for parenting. There actually wasn't for them. God probably gave them what to expect when they're expecting. Anyway, <laughs> verse 2. Verse 2. Later, you know, same thing happened. And she gave birth to his brother, Cain's brother, Abel. And now Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. So you just kind of like keep this in your mind. We got Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked on favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now there's, there's like a lot going on here in this story. Just like, first of all, like this is not so much a comment about how God prefers like meat over vegetables. Although you could probably make the case. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with the kind of key words in there is that, a, is that Cain brought just like some and Abel brought the first. And I think what's significant about, there, about that is that everything is new to them all the time. They don't have like a huge track history of farming, of like the almanac to go back hundreds of years and to start to see these cycles. Stuff comes up from the ground. Animals are now born. They don't know if it's, if it's like a regular thing or if it's going to happen again. There's so much about this that they just don't know, which I think is the point. Because what Abel does is he brings the first and I think that's significant first because he's not entirely 100% sure if there's going to be anything else after that. So one of the things that we say around here is like God's love language or one of them is trust. And that's what Abel is demonstrating in his heart as he brings the sacrifice. It's animals, sure, but that's almost beside the point. It's trust. It's Abel saying, God, I'm going to trust you to show up and provide for me again. And that makes the heart of God Glad That puts a smile on his face because he's going, listen, my people trust me. My son trusts me. And that's a good place for Abel and God to camp out. Cain, on the other hand, brings some. That's what it says, just some. You don't know if it's like first or last, if it's like squishy melons and cucumbers or, or if it's good. You just don't know. It's like he goes over, he just grabs some, making sure he's got enough and brings it back as a sacrifice, which was really no sacrifice at all. You can kind of see the difference between these two things. It's the heart posture behind it. It's the, do you trust him to provide or not? And Abel says, yes. And Cain says, not, not so much on this thing. But listen, the, the bigger point or the harder point that's for us to wrap our mind around, and honestly, the, the tension point or the challenge point for some of us listening in is what happens emotionally to Cain is that Cain gets angry. He gets furious. Now, we don't have a lot about the interactions between Cain and Abel, and so you'd think that he'd get mad at, like, Abel. 
You know, Abel does this thing and makes him look bad. And, and you think, but no, no, the interaction is just like Cain and God about where he stands. But yet the anger is, is like spilling over at Abel. It's not even about Abel. It's about he and God. But it like hurts the people around him. And sometimes like that's what, that's what anger does. It's like an indicator. It's a warning light that flashes on and says, something is wrong. Pay attention to it. Follow it back. And oftentimes, not always, sometimes there's anger. Sometimes there's anger at injustice in the world. Sometimes there's anger at just like things that happen that generally, genuinely should not and never happen. And it's right for us to get angry about those things. But, but sometimes, I would say probably most of the time, the anger has to do with something that's happening to us on the inside. And for Cain, and I think maybe for a few more of us in the room, is that there's a sense of like this, this unconfessed sin that breeds unresolved anger. And it's nasty. And it grows. And it spreads like that disease of sin I mentioned earlier. It doesn't have good that comes out of it. And it's just this nastiness that continues to grow and grow and grow. And so the challenge point for us is, is to don't leave it unconfessed. God is simply asking to, to share it with him. And that's the burden on Cain to share it with God. Listen, I'm upset at myself for bringing just some of the leftovers instead of, instead of what my brother did. He, he got it. He speaks the love language of trust. Like, I understand that now. Forgive me for my lack of trust, right? He could, could go before God and God would love him to come to him with that. But no, he doesn't. Unresolved unconfessed sin breeds unresolved anger and it spills over and it still does. Like that's the thing about these stories is that these are by all accounts, whether you're a spiritual person, Jewish, Christian or not, by all accounts, these are ancient stories. But there is something about them that is just so fundamentally human about them, isn't it? There's just something like in the stories that is like exactly how, not just it worked then, but how it still works so much today. Something about these stories that's like when I go to work, I have a bad day. I screw up and I mess up. And I've got to spend the whole rest of the day just trying to clean up the mess, clean up the mistake that I'm responsible for. And I come home and the kids are like, dad, let's play. Try not to squish me this time. And I blow up on them. No, not now. Now is not the time. Leave me alone. Would you? Can I just get 10 minutes? And it's like that unconfessed sin breeds this unresolved anger and I take it out on other people. It just spills out and hurts the people around me, around you. And it doesn't just stop there. Left unconfessed, it gets much, much worse. Verse 6. And then the Lord said to Cain, Listen, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Listen, he's not asking. God is not asking for his own benefit. He's asking for Cain's benefit. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Just, just listen, simple point, simple takeaway. Do what's right. That's all it takes. Do what's right. We're going to take that a little bit further this morning. 
Because it's not just about doing what's right. It's not just about that action. It's about doing what's right, even when you think no one else is watching. Do what's right, because it's not just your actions that demonstrate and reveal your character. It's your reactions that demonstrate and reveal your character even more than the actions. So example, shoe company, Zappos. Com. doesn't matter if you like them or not, but they are renowned for their customer satisfaction and even more so in a lot of circles for their employee satisfaction is that they take care of their employees so much that if you make it through like the interview process and you get all the way towards the end and then you go through their training kind of onboarding routine and at the same time they're offering you the job, they have a clause also that says, if you'd like to walk away, we will offer you $3,000 cash right now just to leave and not work for our company because they guard their workplace culture so incredibly much. And so this morning, I thought it'd be cool to like offer you $3,000 to walk away from encounter. I'm just kidding. We're just getting like treasures over here going like, no, we'll see ya. Yeah. No, we're not a shoe company. So it doesn't work that way. Um, but the point is, the point is about like the extent that they go through to guard this culture. And so one of the examples that I want to share, actually, in all seriousness, is when they're hiring these massive groups of people in their offices, headquarters just outside of Las Vegas in Nevada, is that they'll send buses to the airport to pick up these prospective candidates and bring them in for their interviews. But what they don't know is that the bus driver is actually a mole. Like the bus driver works for the human resources department and he's making observations, she's making observations the entire trip about who the people are that they're carrying in the bus. Because they're wondering, do they help people with their luggage? Even when, even when it looks like nobody, even when it looks like someone can't do anything for them, how do they treat the people around them? Are they like jockeying for position to be the first one off the bus or the last one? Like what's the, who are they? And so, and so, true story, some of the candidates who've flown to Las Vegas for this interview show up in the waiting room, and the bus driver goes in the HR department, debriefs the interviewers, and some people don't even, they show up, and they just get handed a note saying, thanks for coming, have a nice trip home, see you later. They never even got an interview, because Zappos gets it. A shoe company like understands that it's not your actions in the moment. Anybody can be prepared for an interview for an hour or le- an hour or so when you kind of know what the questions are that's heading your way. Anybody can be prepared for that action when you know it's coming. It's your reaction that truly reveals your heart and your character. And so what God is doing throughout this, he's like asking Cain, why are you so angry? I'm omniscient. Like, I know why you're angry. I made you. I get this whole thing. But ask yourself, why is there an indicator light of your heart going off? Why is there a siren going? Maybe that has something to do with something else that's going on. And so I want to, like, lay that before you guys and say, like, hey, listen, maybe don't look at yourself at the best possible time when you're just driving down 131 on the highway, and like everything is fine. And maybe it would be a, a better thought project to like look at how you respond as soon as you get cut off in traffic. After you have a bad day at work and you come home and you've got like a hair trigger, maybe that 
would be a more appropriate time to start figuring out why do I respond? Why? What does it reveal about what's going on in my heart? And maybe there's something there, some kind of unconfessed thing that I don't want to bring to God. And frankly, it's easier just to let it spill over and hurt the people next to me like Cain. And what we see is that unconfessed sin, it goes unaddressed and then it starts to grow. And then it starts to compound and get bigger and bigger. In verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, hey, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Listen, Jesus made it clear that he was. He said, love one another as I have loved you. You must also love one another. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Remember, he's a farmer. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment, it's more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. He might not have been wrong. Remember, everybody was related at this point. He didn't just kill his brother. He also killed everybody else's uncle, everybody else's brother, a son, There's a family relational connection to this for every single person on the planet. Verse 15. But then the Lord said to him, not so, which I love. Because Cain is experiencing the weight of this judgment that's that's been rightly put on him right now. And he's going, listen, it's too much. They're going to kill me. And he gets, he gets that he would have given up on him. He has given up on him. He gets that we would give up on Cain, that he deserves death, capital punishment for what he did. But God says, not so, that God doesn't give up on him. Anyone who kills Cain, this is God speaking now, will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went from the, uh, from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, which is a word that means wanderer, east of Eden. And it's just kind of like a Bible fun fact, uh, especially in Genesis, that as you move east, you move further and further away from the presence of God. And now he's moving further yet east out of the presence of God. But God is still saying, no, 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 I'm not giving up on you yet. I am still with you. And so a lot of Bible uh, commentators and scholars and things like that will debate uh, heavily, I was just like, what the mark on Cain was all about that signified, hey, listen, you know, don't, don't touch this guy. God's got him. But the greater point isn't the mark. The greater point behind that is that God's got him. Is that he deserved the punishment of death for what he's done. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, life for life. He deserved death. But God says, no, no. instead of making an example out of you, I'm going, instead of having you killed, I'm going to put you into protective custody and thereby make an example out of you. And he does. 
So this is like a crazy story. The whole Bible, right? The whole thing's related. Fast forward way forward to the book of Matthew, a gospel, thousands of years later, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is having this exchange with one of his passionate, passionate followers, Peter. And Peter asks him, hey, Jesus, how often should I forgive someone who, who sins against me? And he kind of knows, like, you know, the Bible, like, commands forgiveness, right? So he goes, uh, in the Jewish, the Jewish setting that Jesus and, and Peter were both a part of, said, hey, three times. But Peter has had the benefit of living with Jesus for a couple of years by this point. He kind of knows the heart of Jesus, that three is not going to cut it. And so Peter, in a very, like, Jesus-y sort of way, says, should I forgive my brother not once or three times? Seven times? It's a good number, right? Good job, Peter. He's starting to get it. Jesus' answer to him in Matthew 18 is not seven times. And he says something interesting. He says 77 times. I want to know, like, where does Jesus just, like, pull out that number from? It's like a vacuum that he's just like, I don't know. I'm just going to say a bunch of numbers, and people will write it down, and preachers will have to figure that out later on, thousands of years from now. I don't think so. You know, I think Jesus, as a rabbi, as a kid, one of his first mandates would start to be memorizing word for word the books of the Old Te- or the, the words of the Old Testament, first five books at least, called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Genesis 4, starting off, Jesus knew. And he's presented with seven times. And Jesus goes, No, 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 because that's not the full extent of the damage of, that sin does. So Jewish perspective on Genesis 4, this Cain and Abel story, was that after Cain had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son, it just like things started spiraling and things started getting out of control and it got worse and worse and worse. And the whole thing, sin sin compounds and it it develops into the story that we know as the flood. When God says, okay, it's time to reboot this entire thing starting with this other family over here. And it's just like it spirals and gets worse and worse and worse, culminating And one guy, this would be Cain's great, great, great grandson named Lamech. And he's out in the field. And this is is Jewish literature kind of about this story. So it's not Bible, but it's been circulating a long time. Is that Lamech actually kills Cain, his great, great, great grandfather. But regardless if that was the story or not, Lamech is guilty of murder. He's got blood on his hands. And he knows, right, the punishment is that this thing is going to come down on him seven times as much. But things have spiraled and sin has compounded and things have gotten so vengeful and so nasty that that Lamech now makes a new declaration in Genesis 4, skipping down a little ways to verse 24. It says, hey, listen, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And that's the number that Jesus picks up and says, no, forgiveness isn't just about when somebody is wronged. Forgiveness goes all the way down to the depths of compounded sin and scoops us up from there. And the command to anybody following in the footsteps of Jesus is to go and do likewise. God, this guy deserved death. And you make an example out of him by putting him in protective custody? 
picking him up in the Jesus story and say, don't forget, grace upon grace, 77 times over, that no matter what, sin, grace abounds over it. Don't, don't discount it. Not one bit. God doesn't, we give up on Cain. God doesn't give up on Cain. Okay, what, what do we read? You know, just some takeaways on the, on the entire thing. And I just kind of want to cover, recover at least four points quickly as we wrap up here. And I understand four points is like too much for us to like go into the weekend keep, keeping all of these things. I'm asking you for one. Just one of these statements, one of these lines from the story that God's spirit is whispering into your heart this morning and saying, paying attention to that one. So the first takeaway on this one is simply, don't play the comparison game. Don't do it. Because, because the name is misleading. When you think of the comparison game, you imagine a winner. There is no winner in the comparison game, Cain and Abel. There's only losers to this one. It's not a comparison game. It's a comparison trap. And it'll leave you stuck. Because no matter what the outcome of this comparison is, it'll make you jealous for the other person and who they are or what they have or what they do or what they give. It'll make you jealous or it'll make you prideful and create this false foundation to live your life that will eventually fall away and leave you broken. The comparison game is a comparison trap. Don't, don't play it. Number two, <laughs> number two is to pray for the people you want to kill. This is Cain's deal with Abel. He doesn't address it. He wants to hurt him. He wants to harm him. But when we sit down, when we pray for the people that we just cannot like, especially for the people, I think one of the, one of the litmus tests for following in the footsteps of Jesus today is to actually love the people we don't like, that you don't like. I mean, it's easy to love people that love you back. What about the people that you don't even like? To pray for them. And I'll tell you what God does, what God does for me. What I trust God is going to do for you, it's going to start to turn and tune your heart to start to see them and to start to see yourself like God sees them, like God sees you, and things will start to change. Pray for the people you want to kill. Number three, learn the lesson. I would add like for the first time, you know, God says to Cain, and he says to you today, just do the right thing. The sin is crouching at your door. Like, it's going to rob you of your life. You'll crash and burn. Just do the right thing the first time and move on. Some of you know people who've been following after Jesus for 20, 30 years. Only they really haven't been following after Jesus for 30 years. They've been following Jesus for one year 30 times. Because as soon as things get hard, they say, like, I'm done, I'm out. And they, like, start this process over again. And they, they don't ever get to see what's beyond saying yes when it gets hard. They don't ever get to see what happens when you give the first. And you have to trust God in the unknown. And you get to see God show up there. Learn the lesson for the first time. And last, and I think for our community especially, this one might be the most important one, is find your mad, your sad, your glad. 
In other words, find those things that just make you so angry, it makes you want to pound the table. Or make you so sad that it brings a tear to your eye. Or so glad that no matter what, it will put a smile on your face. I said that that one was important for our community especially. Because one of the, one of the things that I run into a lot, working with many of our 20-somethings, is this like cultural command to chase your passion. Many of you don't have a passion. And I just want to create the space here this morning in church to say that's okay. It's okay not to know what that thing is. That's an all right deal. In fact, for a lot of people, it took years, even decades, to figure out what that thing was. It takes a huge amount of discernment to try to figure out, why do I want to pound the table? Why, why does this siren or the signal light like flare up on the dashboard of my heart? What is that all about? And it takes time. It takes discernment. It takes a gift of God's presence in your life to try to figure out like what that is. And sometimes we see it happen in people, and I love that. We had Ryan uh, share with us at the, end of, at the end of December, and he shared how like the number one cause of death in infants and young children in developing nations is diarrhea. I mean, it's, it's not these like unpreventable diseases. It's things, diseases arising from like bad drinking water. Like, come on, we can, we can fix this. We know how to do it. We just don't care. And so it makes, him, it makes him angry, angry enough to do something about that, about dedicating and reorienting his life to do something to fix that solvable problem. If you don't have a passion, if you don't have something that makes you mad, if, he doesn't, if you don't have something that breaks your heart and makes you sad or puts a smile on your face, glad, no matter what, that's okay. In the meantime, you're not off the hook. In the meantime, the challenge is to borrow someone else's. Figure it out. You can take ours as a church. The thing around here that makes us mad and pound the table is, is watching and seeing people cut off from Jesus and his church and not get to experience grace in this world, of, of, seeing, of seeing church as a place that's like, I tried that once, it was, condemn, it was condemning, it was judgmental, and I never want to go back, and it makes us mad. And so what we're doing is we're creating this church and churches for, church, for people that don't love, already love going to church. We're creating churches that unchurched people love to attend. One of the things that makes us glad, that makes me smile around here no matter what, is when we come, have people come through these doors, worship, sit here, listen to me, go out. And I talk to them afterwards. And they're like, honestly, I disagreed with about 80% of what you said, especially the Jesus stuff. And then they look back at me and say, see you next week. I love coming. I love that so much. That puts a smile on our face because we're figuring this thing out together. Borrow our mad, sad, and glad. But I just want to leave you with this, that God isn't finished with you. and He's not done with Cain. This is the last line I want to share with you from 4 verse 17 is that Cain made love to his wife a lot of love making going on in a murder chapter of the Bible, but that's all right. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. And so knowing a little bit about the Bible 
And some of the stories, Enoch sounded familiar to me, so I refreshed my memory about it. And Enoch was a guy that was so righteous and so good. He walked with God, and then he was no more. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the Hall of Faith, as it's called, Hebrews 11, picks Enoch up and says, this is what an incredible guy Enoch was. That wasn't this Enoch. That was his cousin. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Not going to share that one with you. No, the truth is, the truth of this Enoch and Cain is a little more down to earth. Something we can wrap our minds around. The simple truth here is that Cain was a farmer. And then he failed so hard he could never farm again. So he became a builder. And then he built a city and named it after his son. The simple truth of the story is that your mistakes don't have to define your life. God has a second chapter for you. The farming's not working out. He might be calling you to building. It's not over. He's not done with you yet. Ready to stand up and let's pray to that God this morning here together. Jesus, we open up your word and we see that, that you broke the curse of sin. Holy Spirit, show us what it means to break the cycle of sin, hurting the people around us with our unconfessed garbage that we harbor in our hearts. It's spilling over and it hurts those we love and it doesn't have to. You're bigger than that. Show us the way out. Show us what hope looks like. God, when we feel stuck and in the bottom, remind us that you are a God who offers grace. Grace not once or three times. Grace not for seven times, but grace 77 times over. Grace upon grace. Grace abounding. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.